Uh, grab your Bibles with me, if you will. Turn to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. Uh, for the entirety of this fall, we have been in a series on the letter that James wrote to Christians scattered abroad, to believers scattered abroad and around the world, living in uh, dark places. This has been one of the longest series I've ever preached in my life. Uh, but I will tell you that every word that James wrote is just filled with, filled with so much truth uh, that I, can't, I haven't been able to get away from it. So I hope it's okay. Are you all right out there? Now, I will tell you that this is going to be our last Sunday. We're going to try to wrap up uh, today on this series as we go into the holidays. Um, but I've, I've really been enjoying it. Two weeks ago, we talked about people problems. People problems. And we learned... Our sermon was about this, that our problems with people are often the fruit of a problem we have with God. And if we could fix the God problem, we would be in position to fix our people problems. He said, you're arguing, you have strife, there's bickering and bitterness among you. Why is it? He said, because you're jealous, you have envy, you're coveting. And, and here's what we learned, that covetousness is idolatry. It's what Paul told us. It is idolatry. Wanting something that someone else has and uh, to the point where you begin to seek it. It's okay to want nice things. That's, it, it's okay to uh, want better things in your life. But when that becomes the goal and that becomes the focus and that takes your attention, what happens is the root of the problem is an unsatisfied heart. And so we're looking for things or positions or titles that other people have to satisfy something in us that's only meant to be satisfied by God and in the will of God. And so it becomes idolatry the moment we look for something else to replace what God was, the, the place that God was meant to hold in our lives. It becomes idolatry. This is a problem. Out of that problem... We then have issues with the people around us. Uh, it, it's rooted in jealousy. It's rooted in envy. It's, it's rooted in coveting what our neighbor has. It's why um, in, in the, uh, the original Ten Commandments, it's, it's there. It talks about coveting, not coveting your neighbor's wife, not coveting, coveting your neighbor's donkey or his possessions and his things. Uh, why? Because it is, it is idolatry in the eyes of God. But we can't fix the problem with people until we get God right in his, in his rightful place. So we submit to God, right? We humble ourselves before the Lord. And then we resist the devil and get the, all the junk out of our lives. And suddenly we're in a better place to get along with people. So now we're going to pick up in, in verse 11. Uh, and, and here's our title of today's sermon is simply this. It's, it's playing God. It's playing God. So, so what James is going to teach us is not only do we chase other things and make other things God, but then one of the problems we have with people and one of the problems we have in our life is that we play God in our own lives. Here's our sermon in a sentence today. I'm sorry, uh, uh, media team, I'm, I'm working you all a little bit harder today. But here's, here's the sentence. Here's, here's what I want you to know at the end of today's sermon. If we would stop playing God in our lives, we would get along better with others and we would reap our harvest in its season. There are harvests in your life that will never be reaped until you stop playing God. 
Do I have your attention today? I thought I might. Verse 11. If you're there, say amen. You should be able to follow along on our app notes, uh, Triumph Church TX and all the app stores. Uh, and whatever the little Google store is, you can find it there too. Um, <laughs> somebody got that over here. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. That's an interesting statement. We get caught up trying to decide if this law is meant for us or someone else. And God says, don't get caught up in that. Just obey the law. Well, that law's not for me. Just obey it. The law is for everyone. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? This issue of judging in the church specifically is an issue that James keeps coming back to in chapter after chapter and subject after subject. So many of our problems in life, and, th and this is what the letter of James is trying to teach us here, that so many of our problems in life are rooted in we're judging other people more harshly and we're giving ourselves a pass. We're holding people to a high standard and yet we're trying to say that that, that law doesn't apply to us. You have to do this, but I can have some grace and some mercy for it. And time and again, James keeps coming back back to it. First thing we do when we're playing God is we play God when we judge others. Let's begin today with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your presence that's here today, for sending your Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to speak to us, to open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits, to hear from you, and to be challenged by the power of your word. Lord, we don't want to play God in our life, but we want you to be our God our King, our Lord, our Savior. Lord, do something wonderful in this place and for all those watching online, in Jesus' name. And the people said? Amen. 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 When he says in verse 11, don't speak evil against each other, the, the word there in the Greek is katalalia, katalalia. And what it translates is this, the, the definition is this, it's the sin of those who meet in, in corners and gather in little groups and pass on confidential information which can destroy the good name of those who are not there to defend themselves. Now I know you've never been a part of anything like that, so again, this doesn't apply to anyone in this room, me either, I've never done this at all. Um, <laughs> But this is the sin, katalalia. We, we, we gather with people and we whisper. And we, and we talk about, and we just say, we say things like, you know, I don't want to say too much, but you know. And we, even if we don't say it, we allow people to read through the lines. And we're tearing down the good name of people. Now, understand, this is not in referring to official situations. We have judges in our country that, that we need them to judge situations. There are times when, when, a, when a judgment is required because of what's going on um, in, in a church or in a country or at work. That sometimes it requires judgment. But what we're talking about is, is, that, is that spirit 
it's that it's that you're not in a position to be the judge and yet we are running our mouth and we're just saying this and we're tearing them down because because I'm not in a position to judge you I'm not going to I can't stand up there and say you did this wrong or you did that wrong so I just whisper in order to make sure you get punished for what you've done are you tracking with me he says it's causing problems this is a sin because what you're now doing is first of all you're breaking the royal law that is to love one another how, how much love is that when you're whispering behind people's back, when you're saying things and spreading things? The second reason is, is because we are putting ourselves into God's position. He is the judge. He is, he is the one who is the law and wrote the law and gave the law. And so when we put ourselves in his position, when we begin to judge this, uh, people by the law, we now are playing God with the people around us. And I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people do that to me. It does not make me feel good. It does not make me want to be around you. It wants me, it, want, it, it makes me want to get you good and told. Now, I know I'm the only one like that here today. But it doesn't make me feel good when that going. It doesn't, it doesn't bring us closer together. It makes me want to come to you and say, what are you talking about and why are you doing this? And how about you just mind your own business? You ever had anybody in your life you just want to say, mind your own business? Like, like look around at the problems you have and you're pointing at me and look at your problems? That's what he's talking about here. Because we play God with the people around us. So that's number one. I, I love that he says, he alone has the power to save or destroy. It's not up to me. You know, the, the, the crazy thing about God is, and, is that it seems like there are times in my life when I do something wrong, and I get in trouble immediately for it. And then there are times when other people do all kinds of worse things, and they don't get in trouble. And I'm like, God, what is going on? It's not up to me. It's up to him. And what I ought to be looking through the lens of is grace and mercy. Lord, I'm glad you had grace on those people. I'm glad you had mercy on them. And I'm praying like next time that I, you know, I get out of line. Lord, I pray that you have grace and mercy on me. And you know what? He's faithful to do that. Why? Because James has already reminded us, just as Jesus reminded us, that the very same uh, measure that we use Remember Jesus said whatever measure you use, whether you use um, justice or whether you use mercy, it's going to be whatever we use for others, it'll be used back to us. So I say grace for everybody, mercy for everybody. Amen? We've talked about this a lot, so I'm, I'm going to keep moving today. Number two, uh, we find in verse 13 through 16, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own plans and all such boasting is evil. The second thing that we do to play God is that we play God when we make plans without involving Him. When we decide, I'm going to go out and live life my way. I'm going to start this business. Now, they were, 
um, traveling uh, mer- merchants that would take their goods, and this is what he's specifically referring to, and they would put them on the backs of camels, and they would go city to city and town to town, and they would trade goods, and they would, make, uh, they would earn a living. And so these traveling merchants would determine, all right, today we're going to go to Sidon, tomorrow we're going to go to Rome, uh, next month we're going to go to Corinth, uh, then we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And they would make a plan and where they were going to go and they would determine, we'll stay here this long, there that long, and we'll make a bunch of money, all is going to be well. These are the type of people that were sitting uh, in churches or in home churches all across that James is writing to. And here's what he says. It's not wrong to own a business and want to make money and, and, and want uh, to, to be a blessing to your family and, and to improve your life. None of that is wrong. But here's what it is. When you start making up your own mind, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go here, I'm going to make this much profit, James says, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. You had all these plans, all this stuff you were going to do, but you never know when tragedy is going to strike. You never know when a hurricane's going to hit. You never know when people just aren't going to buy your product. How many businesses have you seen in your life that seem to be flourishing and exploding, and then all of a sudden they were gone? Never heard from them again. In the music industry, they call them one-hit wonders, right? They, they, they sang one song, and everybody knew it, and everybody sung it, uh, and then all of a sudden you never heard from them again. They thought their, their, their music and their career was on the upswing. This is it. We've made it to the big time. And you never heard from them again. Because, and I love the way the New King James says it. In the New King James, it goes like this. What is your life? It's just a mist. It's just a vapor. It's just the morning fog. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. James is trying to remind us that there is the eternal and then there is the temporal. And we get caught up on the temporal, playing God with the temporal, meaning that which is temporary, that means our life which is only here for a little while, and we're making decisions and making plans, and suddenly things can change. We aren't in as much control as we think we are. We don't have as much control over the outcome of our lives as we think we do. You see, my life belongs to God. He gives us really quickly five ways to know if you're living, um, if you're living your life according to your ways or if you're following in the plans of God, if, if you're involving God or if you're just doing it on your own. The first one is this. He said, you, you set your own schedule. He said, you decide today or tomorrow. May I ask you a question? Are you... Are you setting your own schedule or are you allowing God to be involved in setting your own schedule? Because in the setting of our schedule, we often determine what is priority. God's saying, how about you make me priority and out of that, I'll help you set your schedule and it'll be a schedule that works. The second is this. Um, He said, we are going to a certain town. We select our own path. We choose where we're going. I don't choose my own path. My steps are ordered of the Lord. 
He, he is a, a, a light into my path and a lamp into my feet. That means he is choosing the direction where I'm going. And this is what James is reminding us. You know, don't just wake up one morning and choose where you're going. Say, God, where do you want me to go today? It doesn't always mean that what you're choosing is the wrong thing. It's the principle of getting God engaged in the process. Are y'all okay out there today? Okay. The third one is this. Um, we place our own limits. We choose how long we're going to stay. Remember, he said, we're going to stay there a year. So you determine how long you're going to do it for. And God's like, you don't know how long you're going to do that for. You, you think you know, you don't know. But God does know, and he knows what's in our future. Why wouldn't we engage the God who knows our future in the process as we're making plans for our own future? I wonder in my life, how many obstacles I would have avoided, how much heartbreak I would have avoided if I had done a better job of letting God be involved. Number four, we arrange our own activities. We decide what we're going to do. He said, uh, we will do business, meaning I'm going to make my decision. In, in his language here, nowhere is James saying that we'll do what God calls us to do or we will do the work of God. No, he just says, we'll do our business. We're going to do what we want. We're going to sell what we want to sell. That's no way to live your life. Our life belongs to God. And then number five is that we assume things. We predict our own outcome. He's, he predicted we're going to make a profit. You know, the most foolproof plans in the world can still come to nothing. You think you have all the kinks worked out. You think it's, the plan is perfect. Everything's going to be laid out. And then suddenly something happens out of your control. God says, don't try to live your life outside of me. Let me be God. Let me be Lord. You see, I am convinced of this. And, and he tells us in verse 14, there's two problems. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? You think you know you don't. And secondly, your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and gone. There's two problems here. Number one, you have no idea what your future will bring. And number two, you have no guarantee of a long life. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. There are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows. And the other is that we do not know. I have watched as people at the tops, at the heights of what we view as great success in society and overnight seem to plummet. And I have watched as people from the bottom and the depths of what we view as success in society were brought straight to the top. The, the Old Testament talks about how God raises one up and pushes another down. This is, the, this is how the world works. But we don't know exactly when God is going to work something like that. So we can't live our life playing God. What do we do? We get God involved in the process. What we ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, you ought to live your life. I've got to live my life. If you're watching online, we, we've got to live our lives in such a way that we wake up daily. Every plan that we make is, is with the heart and the mindset of, if the Lord wants me to. Should it, does it mean we shouldn't plan? Of course you should plan. Jesus talked about how, uh, why, why would a man go out and build enough, uh, build, try to build a house or a building and then not have enough money to build the building? What is he talking about? You didn't have a good plan. God is a planner. 
Look at the entire context of Scripture. Understand that God gave the Old Testament. He laid out the plan, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan, everything he laid out. God is a planner. He loves a good plan. So it's not don't plan in your life. Just live, uh, you know, wherever you want to go, just floating around. Well, the Lord's going to take care of me today. That's not what I'm saying here. No, James is saying get a plan, but get God's plan. Let him be the Lord. Let him be God in your life. Otherwise, because if, if we don't live this way, we're boasting about our own plans, and all such boasting is evil. You say, well, Pastor and I'm not boasting. Here's what James says. Just the very fact that you're making these determinations without God is boasting, and it's evil. Well, I'm not bragging about it to everybody. doesn't matter. When you do it without God, when I do these things without God, it's, it's evil. It's not just wrong. It's evil. And then he says this, verse 17. This, this are, these are powerful words. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. We think of sin and, and we, always, uh, we often think of the, the big bad sins, right? Uh, the, the, the big ones on the list, the ones we all know about. Um, idolatry and stealing and killing and, and um, homosexuality and uh, fornication and adultery and, and all these, these, these sins, right? How many of you know a lot of those list of big sins? But here's, here's what James tells us. He points to something deeper. He said, when you know a truth, when you know what you're supposed to do, and then you don't do it, even if it's not specifically written out verbatim, that's a sin. Jesus, and, and, and this is another reference to, to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 47. And, and in these words of Jesus, he's talking about uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Right? You remember Jesus saying that. And, and here's, here's the principle of what James, how he's applying the, this, this statement. He's saying, once you know more about the ways of God and the work of God. So to all the people reading this letter from James, now that you know, beforehand, you didn't know that you were playing God. You didn't know that you were boasting. But now that you've read my letter, now that you've heard the sermon, now that you've been enlightened, now you know. So when you go out, you may not have been sinning before, but when you leave here now and you go out and do the exact same thing, now it becomes a sin. To know the truth, but not walk in the truth, is a sin. That's what James is telling us. Jesus, Jesus, um, to whom much is given, to the one who has been enlightened even more, to the one who has received more knowledge, to the one who has received more truth, to the one who has received more revelation, he is more of him is required, so now it becomes a sin when he doesn't do it. How many times in my life have I sinned not because I was doing something horrible and ugly, but because I was simply not following out what I already knew to be the right thing to do. Sobering words one more time from the Apostle James. If we know what to do and we don't do it, it's a sin. 
But I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced of this. I want to live my life in such a way, just like uh, they, they said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, for him, in him we live and we move and we have our being. This is the way I want to live my life. God, in you I live. In you I move to the left or to the right. If you don't want me to go, I won't go. If you want me to go here, even when it doesn't make sense, I'll go there. The, the New Living in the same verse says we exist Here's what what the apostles were saying. We exist in God, not outside of God. That's how I want to live my life. Number three, you guys are just staring at me this morning. I'm wondering, did you not get enough sleep? I I don't know. James chapter five, verse one. Seemingly here, he's going to make another shift in topic, but he's really not. He's talking about the same stuff. Look here, you rich people. I know what you're thinking. You ain't talking to me now. This is for somebody else. (laughs) Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan and anguish with, with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. (laughs) James. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. Got any dollar bills in your pocket? Be be careful. Don't let it touch your skin. It will eat away your flesh like fire. (laughs) This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. Man. For listen... Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated their pay. The wages you have held back cry against you. The cries of of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. I love that he uses this title here, the Lord of heaven's armies. It's not one you see very often in the New Testament. But it's literally an offensive position like all of the armies of heaven are lined up ready to go to war against you. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Now, when you read this, it is very easy to read it through the lens of all rich people are bad. All wealthy people have fattened themselves for the slaughter. The term fat cat suddenly takes on new meanings, right? But understand that that's not what James is saying here. James, similar to the Apostle Paul, has a way of like punching you in the mouth to to rattle us and shake us and get our attention. But then when we understand what he's really saying, it makes sense. It's not that all wealth and all riches are bad. They are not. It's not that all wealthy people are bad because they are not. It's not that all rich people are are fattening themselves for the slaughter because they are not. The question is, how are we spending our money? You see, rich is a very, uh, it's a term that is all based off of perspective. If I make more money than you, you think I'm rich. If I live in a nicer house and and drive a nicer car and wear nicer clothes and go to nicer restaurants than you, you think I'm rich. But if I look to the person ahead of me that 
has a nicer house, drives nicer cars, wears nicer clothes, goes on better vacations, whatever the case may be. I think they are rich. They don't think I'm rich. Because rich is all about the perspective you are are on. You look at most of the world. Most of the world looks at you and says you are a very rich person. And yet we look around and go, Pastor, I am struggling to make ends meet. Because, because rich, what he's referring to here is the state of our heart, not the amount of money in our bank account. So the third way that we play God is simply this. We play God when we spend our money without him. When we just do it any way we want to do it and not involve God. Remember, one was uh, how we live our life, and now he's talking about how we spend our money. Money is not evil in and of itself. Being wealthy, being rich is not evil in and of itself. But here is the problem with wealth. It is much easier to put your faith in the tangible nature of money than it is to put your faith in the intangible nature of God. It is easier to trust that I can pay my bills and if I had more money, I would be okay than it is to put my trust in God and my faith in God and say, you know what, Lord, you are my provider, you are my God, you are my king, and I'll be all right when you say I'm all right. It's much easier. So there's a, there is a trap. Now, there are traps that people without money face that people with money don't often face, but the wealthy face traps And in any of us that have wealth in our lives at all, we still have to face the same traps. And that is, how are we spending our money? Are we spending our money in ways that please our own desires? Notice what he said here. Um, You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter because you are satisfying your every desire. You spent your money on you. You spent your money to make yourself happy. Again, only God He designed us in such a way that only He can make us truly happy. So now we're spending our money to try to fulfill something that God was made for. One of the reasons that that tithing is a test for both you and I, but also a test for God, is because it requires us to take uh, something tangible something that we can hold in our hands, something that we can do something with, and we put it in the hands of a God that I, 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 don't, I can't always see and I can't always feel and, and, I, and I, I, I can't just walk up and put my arms around God and give Him a hug. I can't take God down to the grocery store and buy groceries with Him. And so every time we bring our tithe into the storehouse and every time we put our money into the kingdom of God, it is a test of faith and trust. And it's also why God said, you can test me in this. You can watch, and I'll prove it to you. Every time you take your unrighteous mammon, your wealth, your money, and you put it in the kingdom of God, and you, and you put me first in your life and in your finances, that I'll come through for you. And I'll open up the windows of heaven till there's no more need. I'll be your God. Jesus said it like this, you cannot serve God and mammon. But what he does tell us is we should use our mammon or our unrighteous money for godly purposes. Luke chapter 16 uh, and and Luke chapter 19, he he gives us these parables. In Luke 19, it's the parable of money, about uh, money and the the servants. It's a very important principle. the, The master's going away and he calls his servants and he gives them each some money. He gives one ten, one five, one two, and he says, look, I'm going away. While I want you to do business while I'm gone. 
He said, do something with the money I've given you. Do something with the money I've entrusted you. Now, the question is this, and I want you to answer it for me. Whose money is it? It's the master's, right? It's not the servant's money. It's the master's money. He entrusted the servant with the money and then went away and said, I want you to do something with it. The second question is this. Did he give the same to everyone? No, he didn't. To one he gave ten, to another five, to another two. Depending on which time Jesus is telling the story, one time it was five, the next time in, in two and one. doesn't matter. The principle is the same. Not everybody gets the same amount. Not everybody is going to be multimillionaires in this room. I hate to break it to you. It's just not. We're on different levels. We just are. I, I can't get mad about it. Just, you know, all I can do is this. Jesus came back. He went to the servant. Guy had 10. He turned it into 20. He said, well done. I'm going to give you cities to rule over. Went to the one who gave five. Turned it into 10. He said, well done. I'm going to give you cities to rule over. Went to the one who had given one, given two. He said, I didn't do anything. I just hid it. I just, I just took care of it. He said, I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to the one who has more. What's the principle? The principle is this. Um, wealth is not necessarily bad. Being, being blessed and, and having riches in your life is not wrong. Otherwise, why would Jesus have given the guy more? But we want to live our life in such a way where we say, look, I'll do good with my money. I'll give to God. I'll give to the kingdom of God when I have enough. When I get to a certain place in life, I'll do something with it. But Jesus is teaching us this principle. Whether you have two, five, ten, or more, what he's wanting us to do is what he's called us to do with that money. That doesn't mean you need to bring every nickel you have and, and give it to the kingdom of God. You see, the servants can live on the money. They also worked with the money. They used the money to expand the master's kingdom. All of it. What I love about God is this. I was having this conversation with, um, with, with, with some of our interns this week. And there, there's a scripture in the Old Testament that talks about not muzzling the ox while he's treading the grain. Right? So the oxen is working, and while he's working, they didn't want to put a muzzle on them. They allowed them to eat of the grain or eat of, of the harvest while they were working. Here's, here's what I love about God. If we do what we're supposed to with, with what he has entrusted us with, because it's not my money anyway, it all belongs to him. And so while I have it, while it's in my possession, if I take care of him and I do what I'm supposed to with it, he, he has no problem with me enjoying my life and enjoying the fruits of the labor and being, being blessed like he's called me to be. But I have to get this understanding, it's not my money anyway. Everything I have, everything that comes into my bank account, it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. Jesus goes on, and, and in Luke chapter 16, he, he gives us another story, uh, another parable, and he talks about a man who had been fired, but he took his money and he used it to make friends. And here's what Jesus was saying. What are you doing with your unrighteous mammon? This man used his money to make friends in eternity. Here's the principle. When we bring our, our, our tithe and our offering into the house of God, 
We are making friends that when you get to heaven one day, there are people you don't even know about. There's people whose names you don't even know. Um, and you've been a blessing to their life. I happened to open a letter this morning right before, right before I walked in. It's been sitting on my desk for a month or so, and I, I didn't know what it was. It was in a big envelope. I didn't know what it was, and I happened to open it up. And it was a young girl from here in Beaumont. I don't even know who she is, but she had written it from her school, and she had sent a letter to the church. She said, I want to thank all the people of Triumph Church. And she started listing the things that, that we had done during the hurricane that you did, and that happened because of your faithfulness to God pulling people out of the water, cleaning out houses, rebuilding houses, giving away mattresses. And she lists all of them. And I don't know how old she was, but her handwriting wasn't very good. It was kind of a print. So I would say she was um, 10 or younger, if I had to guess. But she said, I just want to thank you to all of you. You're great friends. And you're real heroes to me. Holy smoke. Like, here's a little girl. I don't don't even know. I I don't even know her name i got to go back and read the letter to, to know her name. But yet, because the people of God, we took our resources and we understand that it doesn't belong to us anyway. It belongs to Him. And we use them for His kingdom. We're making friends in eternity. And I believe there's an impact been made on that young girl's life. And you don't even know her name. So there are people all over the world. We don't even know their name. But when you get to heaven, when you walk through the gates, they're going to be waiting on you. And they're going to say, hey, John. Hey, Mary. I'm glad you're here. I've been waiting on you. Let me tell you the story about how I received Jesus. And what I didn't know then, but I do know on this side of eternity, it was beca- it, of eternity, it was because of your giving. So this is, this is the words of Jesus. This is the words of Jesus. How are you spending your money? Doesn't mean you shouldn't be wealthy. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be rich. That's not the point at all. The question is, are you spending your money outside of God? Are you just spending it on your own desires? Well, when I get more money, they did a study back in, I think it was 1992, and they asked people at different income brackets how much money you needed to make before you could realize the American dream. And everybody at the $25,000 bracket said they needed to make about $54,000 a year in order to, then they could live the American dream. Then they went to people who made $100,000 and they said, how much money do you need to make in order for you to know the American dream? And they said $192,000 a year. And what they found after they went level after level after level was that no matter what level you were on, it was almost double. Every person said, I need about twice as much as I make right now, and then I could be happy and live the American dream. Well, if I I just got a little more money, then I could do what God wants me to do, and I could be happy, and and then then I would take care of the kingdom of God. When the principle is, if we take care of God, and we let him be involved in our finances since it's his money anyway. He'll bless us and help us get to where we want to go. Instead of playing God, and, I, and I'm closing now, and instead of playing God, James says we ought to be like the farmer. Instead of playing God, be a farmer. Here's what he says. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. I want to end you with this word of encouragement today. How are you waiting? How are you waiting? 
Are you waiting impatiently or are you waiting like the farmer? The farmer. The farmer waits with the hope and expectation of reward. He's looking and saying, I know there's a harvest coming my way and I'm hoping for it and I'm expecting it. How are you viewing your future? Are you viewing your future with hope and expectation or are you viewing your future as dim and dull and no hope? Secondly, the farmer waits a long time. It takes most of the year to grow a harvest. We live in a, in a, in a in immediate society. I want it and I want it now. And James is writing even to us today, maybe even especially to us today, and saying sometimes it takes a while. The farmer waits, but he works hard in the meantime. He works hard in the meantime. What are you doing in the meantime while you wait? The, the farmer waits depending on things out of his own power. This, this is what I love. The farmer can't make it rain. The farmer can't make the grass grow. The farmer can't make the wheat grow. He is dependent upon things outside of his own power, and yet he waits anyway. And yet he does all that he can anyway. In our lives, for you to fulfill the will of God in your life, to be everything that he's called you to be, you cannot do it on your own. You are dependent upon things outside of your control. The farmer waits despite changing circumstances and uncertainties. Things are moving and things are shifting. No worries. James has already said, you don't know what life is holding. Trust in what God is doing. The farmer waits, encouraged by the value of the harvest. The, the, the farmer waits because there's a big dream. And the farmer waits because he's determined that the harvest is worth waiting for. Your future is worth waiting for. Don't try to do it your way, but stay in God's lane. The farmer waits, but he is encouraged by the work and harvest of others. You see, he doesn't look down the row and, say, and get jealous and upset and envious and say, well, they got it and I didn't. No, he is encouraged. When you receive your harvest, it encourages me that God is going to do it for me as well. The, the, the farmer waits because he really has no other option. The truth of the matter of this is in your life, what are you going to do anyway? You might as well wait. The farmer waits because it is no good to give up. Paul said, don't grow weary while doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest. The farmer waits because he's aware of how the seasons work. In due seasons, not every season is a harvest season. Not every season is a growing season. There are seasons when you have to work the ground, but he knows how the seasons work. My time is coming. Turn to your neighbor and say, my time is coming. The farmer waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important and not less so to wait. You've been waiting a long time. You say, Pastor Randy, you, you don't understand what I've been, to, been through. You don't understand how long I've been waiting. Maybe I don't, but I know how long I've been waiting. And it's more important now in the 11th hour that we don't give up. I love that he said here, the rains in the fall and in the spring. As, as I was praying about this, God just really began to encourage me and speak to me. And, and if, if this fits in your life today, I want you to receive this as a, as a word of God and a word from, of encouragement for you. There were two rains, the fall and in the spring. And the two rains did different things. You see, we often connect 
the reins of God with the blessing of God. And we should. But what we don't understand is that for the farmer, rain does not mean immediate harvest. You can't have a harvest unless it rains. So the rain is a blessing from God. But just because it doesn't rain doesn't mean you're going to go out the next day and reap your harvest. The first rain in the fall, um, they would come out of the summer. There wasn't much rain. The, the ground would be really hard. And before you could plant, you had to dig the ground. You had to till the ground. You had to plow the ground. You had to work the ground. And so the rains would come, and it would soften up the earth. And it made the work that they were doing easier and more effective. Some of us in this room are in a plowing season and a planting season. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It just means that's where you are in your life. Can I say to you that the reins of God are coming in your life to make what you're doing easier and more effective. Without rain, the, the, the seed can't take root. The second rain that came in the spring was not so you could go plow the ground because the ground was already plowed and the grass was growing or the wheat was growing. But without rain, it wouldn't reach its full potential. It would struggle to grow because it was the rain that gave it the life that it needed to be able to grow. So I want to speak this word over your life today. If you're in a place where you've already planted and you've been waiting and you're expecting a harvest at any moment, I want you to know that the rains are coming and God is going to cause your harvest to grow and it's going to be maximized in your life. But no matter where you are in the process, it may not mean that your harvest is coming tomorrow because this, the harvest didn't happen until the summer. Don't get caught up thinking, well, the, the pastor said the rain was coming and God told me rain was coming, but I don't see it yet. Understand, the rain is part of the process. It is a promise from God that he's doing his part and he's going to grow your harvest. Don't give in, but keep waiting just like the farmer. Have an understanding of the seasons in your life. I want to declare over you that your harvest is ripening as we speak. Father, I believe that there has been good seed sown by family after family and person after person in this congregation, Lord God. We're sowing good seed. We've planted good seed. And Lord, today we don't want to be God. We don't want to play God. We want you to be our God and our Lord today. Lord, I'm, I'm asking that you would send the rain in our lives. Send it as a sign of your blessing that you are doing what you can Lord, we can't force the ground, to, the grass to grow. We can't force the harvest to grow. But God, you can. So we are trusting and reliant upon you. But we receive this word today as a word from you that even though it might take some time, we understand the seasons and that we know that in due season, we will reap a harvest. Father, I'm praying right now that harvest season is coming. Father, for people that have been working, for people that have been planting, for people that have been faithful to you, Lord God, I am declaring now that the seasons are changing and the harvest is coming. I thank you for it right now. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people said, amen. amen. Clap your hands if you received that word this morning.